Hi everyone, my name is Max Grohlman and I'm a fourth year human biology and society major at UCLA from Redondo Beach, California. I'm also a member of the student-led consulting group tasked with providing information, insight, and advice on understanding and solving food apartheid, as well as endocrine disrupting exposures related to processed food packaging. This short podcast is meant for prospective clients with an overview of the solutions already at work within communities to provide affordable, healthy food to those who are traditionally and purposefully excluded from it. In this episode, I will reference the work of think tanks, news agencies, companies, and individuals to try to shine a spotlight on the myriad of public health interventions to this complex problem. The goal is to not necessarily find a miracle silver bullet among these examples, but rather to hear the voices and stories of those in this fight against food injustice and to draw inspiration from the successful work that has already been done in this space. With all that being said, I'd first like to start by reviewing a piece from the Brookings Institute that provides a little bit of background on how we can understand the issue of disparities in food access in America, as well as some potential solutions to it as well. The comprehensive report by Carolyn George and A.D. Tomer begins by discussing why the term food deserts can often be an inaccurate and inadequate way of conceptualizing the problem. Among other issues, the authors note that individuals don't necessarily shop for food only at the closest retailers, with many preferring to buy food near their place of employment or at a location that just simply isn't the closest option. Secondly, the concept of food deserts doesn't necessarily account for what is often a much more important factor for buying healthy food in the first place, cost. The desert concept, they argue, can be misleading as it suggests that simply placing a grocery store with fresh and healthy food in the communities that lack them is the solution. Although this likely can be of some help, if the cost of the healthier food is unaffordable to those in the community, there's no promise that such a store would actually help reduce the inequities in access at hand. In agreement with the Brookings Institute's report, an article from the nonprofit the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, provides further reasoning to why this term is misleading and potentially even inappropriate. The article argues food desert doesn't adequately denote the intentionality of how regions with inequitable food access were created through long histories of systemic racism and institutional neglect. It's no accident, the authors say, that people of color bear the brunt of this health burden. Secondly, the piece concurs with the Brookings Institute that the term doesn't adequately depict the cost burden at play and its overemphasis of geography as well as underplaying of how communities impacted still have rich food cultures and mechanisms of combating this legacy of discrimination as well. All of this is to say that although terminology might initially appear to be a minor point of concern, how we frame food inequity is closely related to how we conceptualize and implement solutions to the problem. The NRDC arrives at the terms food apartheid and food justice, both terms preferred by this consulting team as well, as they better integrate issues of social justice and access to food and are free of the problematic implications of previously devised terminology. I hope that was a helpful introduction to some of the problems our firm is tackling, and be sure to check out our other articles, podcasts, and memos that provide greater insight to ideas mentioned up until this point. Now that we're clear on terminology, we can now begin to explore some of the solutions developed and implemented to approach food injustice and food apartheid. The first example is I'd like to talk about are mentioned in the earlier reference report from the Brookings Institute. The authors center their criticism on mainstream interpretations of the problem that don't center costs as a central issue, and hence their highlighted solutions put this barrier at the forefront. Some mentioned solutions include Seniors Farmers Market, nutrition program which connects elderly community members of lower financial means 
to fresh produce by working with senior housing and senior centers nationwide. The Double Up Food Bucks Michigan program is another worth our attention that doubles the purchasing power of individuals on food stamps when they buy fresh fruits and vegetables and has been used to buy over 18 million pounds of healthy food, according to this article. Similarly, the, un the End Hunger Connecticut program also doubles the cost limit of SNAP recipients when the benefits are used at participating farmers markets in the state. Although we unfortunately don't have the time to talk about all three programs in their proper depth, I think a couple key factors worth noting across all of them are that they directly address the cost barrier at the heart of so many issues related to food apartheid and work with social programs that are already well-recognized, utilized, and successful. In particular, the increasing purchasing power for low-income individuals demonstrated by the SNAP-related programs greatly demonstrates how food justice interventions can benefit from using existing social programs to reduce the labor involved in activism efforts. If you'd like to read more about these programs in the Brookings Report, I'll make sure to link the resources in the show notes. Moving on, I'd like to quickly highlight two ideas discussed in Aria Daily's Medium article tackling the topic of food justice. In a piece that brings up five thoughtful solutions, two that I think are worth particular emphasis are bus stop farmers markets and community gardens. Daily describes how bus stop farmers markets have proven effective when implemented because they bring access to fresh produce to a convenient location for many community members and don't rely on people needing to go out of their way. Similarly, community gardens situate healthy food back in the areas where people currently live and work and also complement other programs tasked with improving public health. All five of Daly's proposed solutions are worth reading, though, even if we don't have the time to discuss them all today, and I will link to her article in the show notes as well. I'd like to end this podcast with two examples where we can have the chance to hear from the voices of those on the ground in the fight against food injustice directly. The first comes from a segment by NBCLX, a division of the broadcast giant dedicated to highlighting conversations relating to local and community issues, which focuses on the Healthy Neighborhood Market Network. This network is a nonprofit based in South LA that is tackling food injustice by trying to increase the prevalence of healthy foods at convenience stores. We'll play a short clip of the segment where you'll hear more about it from the owner of a corner store named Hanks in South LA, Kelly Jackson. 12 miles away in the Hyde Park neighborhood of South LA, a solution to food deserts is coming in the form of probably the last thing you think of when you hear the word healthy, liquor stores. Yes, these. The Healthy Neighborhood Market Network is transforming rundown liquor stores into healthy mini-marts. And that's because in South LA, for every one grocery store, there were four liquor stores in 2018. It's kind of like we're the bridge between the grocery store. Like maybe you already have your own place to shop, but you most likely have forgot something and you don't want to go all the way back to the grocery store. So you have the option of knowing that Hanks has lettuce, Hanks has tomatoes. I didn't know you were going to come back here. I would have cleaned it up. Jackson, whose family has owned the store for more than 20 years, wanted to make sure the store was also visually stunning. When you're driving down Florence, you're going to see this bright orange. The idea was that on a gloomy day, I wanted this corner to pop a bright space that looked like it should be on the west side here in South Central Los Angeles. And it's beautiful. But it's more than just a pretty store. We have nutrition workshops every third Saturday of the month, nutrition workshops for kids. We've had art workshops. We have 
block parties. And yes, they still sell liquor. I wanted to meet people where they are and understanding that everybody's at a different point in their journey. And I'm not here to judge or teach or push people into being healthy. And another important thing to me was not alienating customers that supported us for over 20 years. This store helps to make healthy food normal. It helps to make it accessible in a way that's already familiar to the community. We know the corner liquor store. That's something that's been in the community and that's true of the store. Hanks has been here for decades. Fresh produce brings added cost, additional maintenance, and a shorter shelf life than highly processed, prepackaged snacks. So I was curious to hear what this transformation had meant for the store's bottom line. We had doubled and tripled our revenue from before the transformation. Seven other stores have been transformed through the Healthy Neighborhood Market Network. They've seen an average profit increase of $1,453 a week for healthy food options and a 124% increase in produce revenue, according to the LA Food Policy Council. I hope you found that segment as insightful and powerful as I did, and you can view the rest of it, as well as read more about the Healthy Neighborhood Market Network through the resources provided in the show notes. Lastly, I wanted to highlight an enterprise that I was first exposed to a few years back while watching the ABC hit show Shark Tank, a television program that gives up-and-coming entrepreneurs the chance to receive an investment and mentorship from experienced executives aptly named Sharks. The pitch that drew my attention was from Every Table, a company with a social mission to provide fresh, healthy, and affordable food to all and address issues of food justice in the way they operate their business. As described in a PBS NewsHour segment I'll play an excerpt from shortly, the company runs a central kitchen where healthy meals are prepared and distributes them to stores across LA. What's unique about the operation is that these stores vary in price point based on the income level where the store is operated, essentially using revenue generated from stores placed in wealthier neighborhoods to enable the company to charge less in disadvantaged ones. Let's listen in. But to Sam Polk, it's only prelude to his new venture, Every Table. He's just opened the first outpost of what he hopes will be a nationwide chain of restaurants, dishing out healthy food, furiously fast, and challengingly cheap. So that means in this neighborhood, which is South Los Angeles, where per capita income is $13,000 a year, and life expectancy is 10 years lower than more affluent areas, we price the meals at $4. Four bucks is a great price here compared to fast food, which is the predominant option. David Foster also left a rich career in finance to join Sam Polk. They're about to open a second every table in upscale downtown LA. $8 a meal. But eight bucks is also a great price compared to what's available in the healthy, fast, casual space downtown. So it's $8 versus $4 for exactly the same food? That's right. It's basically making sure that everyone can afford healthy foods. The same healthy food prepared in the same central kitchen to keep costs low. And here's the key innovation, sold at higher prices in wealthier neighborhoods to make up for the super skinny margins in poor ones. In a world where inequality is clearly growing and be becoming to be seen as structural, we think that it, this is the time for a new business that questions that fundamental assumption that prices should be the same for everyone. This is one of the dreams of all sellers, right, is price discrimination. You, you want to charge people what they're actually willing to pay as opposed to just have 
one price across the board. We're not price discriminating in, in the sense of trying to make as much money off of each customer as possible. We're actually kind of doing the opposite. We're saying we don't need to make much, if any, money on a lot of our customers because what's driving us is not just having a, a, a successful, viable company, but more importantly, solving this problem that afflicts a lot of people. Surprised that two guys from Wall Street are doing this? Yes. Deidre Dixon's foundation feeds the homeless, getting leftovers from every table just one day old. There's not too many places around in our community, unfortunately, where you can get salads, you can get these meals. So yes, so that two guys from Wall Street can come down into South LA and say there's a need here that needs to be met by way of food and meet that need, I am very surprised, but grateful. Again, I hope you found that short clip informational as well as inspiring, and I'll make sure to link the information for every table and the full segment below. From the student-led consulting firm and Society Nginx 108, I'm Maxwell Grohlman, and I want to thank you so much for taking the time to learn more about the efforts to fight food apartheid with me. Make sure to explore the full collection of resources discussed in this podcast and our show notes, as well as the media presentations across our website to learn more.